HHW presents Who Reads the Watchmen? Issue number two by the Legion of Dudes. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, we have something special down here at Birdland this evening. A recording. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. Gentlemen, let's broaden our mind. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. the thrill seekers corrupt and immoral and now here's the dudes it's 11 minutes to midnight welcome to a half hour wasted presents who reads the watchman issue number two i'm adam umack alongside my fellow panelists and conspirators, the Legion of Dudes. Guys, why don't you introduce yourselves to the good people? I'm Russell Latham. I'm Adam Reed. I'm Johnny M. And I'm Jim Dietz. Thanks for tuning in to our 12-episode odyssey into the fictional realm of the end of days. Listen in or interact live in this page-by-page, spoiler-filled roundtable discussion and analysis of the most celebrated graphic novel of all time. Please visit the Half Hour Wasted Forum at thecomicforums.com where you can post your thoughts on all aspects of The Watchmen in this truly great online community of which we are all a part. Send your comments to us via email at comments at legionofdudes.com. Uh, well, we are coming off of issue one, our very first episode of Who Reads the Watchmen, and I think it would be absolutely and entirely appropriate to thank um, the folks at the Comics Forum communities, more specifically the folks uh, Dave Duanch and Super Ugly at the Geek Savants podcast, the Comic Geek Speak podcast, Sean Whelan and Sensei Whatnot over at Raging Bullets, uh, Lori over at Comic Book Roadshow, Hell's Fire over at the V for Vertigo podcast, Ken and Art uh, at the Too Old to Grow Up podcast, and likewise, I would absolutely like to thank everybody at ComicArtFans.com. I know I bothered you uh, with sending you an email in your inbox if you had Watchmen art last week on your Comic Art Fans profile, and I would absolutely like to thank you guys for listening in. I hope that these episodes will be uh, of help to you and your enjoyment of Watchmen. And also, and I'll open this up to the guys here, I think that this absolutely would not be possible without uh, Brad and Frank from A Half Hour Wasted. What do you guys think? Yeah, oh, I agree absolutely. with that. Yeah. Yep, they're the best. Yeah, Thanks, yeah no, no doubt. Tune in if you haven't. Absolutely. So the format's going to be Half Hour Wasted is going to release their episodes at the beginning of the week. And folk, us folks here at the Legion of Dudes podcast will be releasing our episodes on Thursdays. So our format really, as this is taking shape and as this is getting a life of its own really in one short episode... Um, from all the talk that we've done, um, we will tell you, uh, our listeners right now, that our plan is, after The Watchmen is done, is to continue this. So our format is, um, we would like to do a maxi-series uh, in, a, in a Watchmen-like format. So, for example, we can do Earth-X or The Ultimates or Hush 
or The Walking Dead in a Watchmen-like uh, episodes. Probably not as many. And got then, RoboCop. Oh, good lord, save us now! And yeah, with the <laughs> RoboCop. <laughs> Sorry. And in between those episodes, uh, we're going to have one-shot episodes where we can talk about Batman Year One, Justice League International, uh, Darwin Cook's The Spirit, and uh, Mutant Massacre, or, or who knows what else we're going to do. But we're going to have surveys on the forums at thecomicsforums.com to help us dictate what our listeners want to hear. So other than that, um, that's what we're planning at least. So be on the lookout for extended episodes of The Legion of Dudes. Um, about, about, I'd say, probably uh, in the beginning stages of the Watchmen episodes and certainly afterwards. Um, John, you have a bunch of feedback from our issue number one slash episode one podcast from a bunch of the guys and gals on the forum. So uh, what have you got for us? Yeah, we had some great feedback after the first issue, and we appreciate everyone um, chiming in and, and letting us know that they were listening. And I uh, just want to get to some of those quickly. First from Sean, who is Optimus Black on the forum, um, also of PKD Media. Uh, Sean said, after listening to the episode a few times last night, you have renewed my interest in reading The Watchmen. What I like about the show is that there are entry-level Watchmen readers in the Legion of Dudes, as well as a tactful literary experts. Having such a combination in this panel makes a Watchmen reader like myself feel comfortable instead of frightened. Now, John, do you consider yourself in the tactful or, <laughs> or the other category? Uh, I'll, I'll take other, other, uh, <laughs> what else have you got? I have, uh, so that was Sean PKD media, Optimus black on a forum. Yes. And I have, uh, right. from max headroom. First off, great job dudes for your first effort on this. It was great to listen to my readership of the Watchmen stems back to the original, original single issues. I was 14 when it was coming out. I still love it. And I loved it at that age. Um, that's from max headroom. Thank you very much. Uh, good, yeah, he's all these guys are great people. Um, good, dis- good discussion, guys. Looking forward to the journey from Caliban. What Caliban, a great man! He's got some Wikipedia pages out there, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> what a great book and what a great cast! How proud I am of you boys! Can't wait to hear the next one. Um, best line in the whole cast: "You suck, you Mac." I laughed so hard from the crippled Avenger. And we'd also like to thank the Pamp and Paul French and John Carroll and Darth BX, uh, all the good people on a half-hour wasted forums that have uh, commented and been so kind. And we appreciate it. Yeah, and we Paul, look. Paul pretty much he wrote a whole dissertation. Uh, yeah, much. I wouldn't. I didn't want to uh, mention Paul's posts because it would ruin the show and there would be no re- need to record it. So, uh, but Paul has some great info. <laughs> <laughs> and now yeah, I'm going to hand it. I'm going to hand off to Russ. So we can get started. All right, guys. <clears throat> so what we'll start this episode with, and this is something that you, you all will see that we'll do every issue, is we're going to start off with a different topic of discussion before we kind of get into the to the page-by-page, page, just something to kind of break the ice a little bit, something to, to kind of fire up the discussion and get the juices flowing a little bit before we, before we dive into to the meatiness that is the Watchmen. So this week's uh, topic it's just kind of current events. I just wanted to kind of t- kick off a discussion amongst us about, you know, what was going on in the world, um, pop culture, politically, socially, um, right around 1985, 1986, and, and I guess even into 87 since this um, book was released, pushed into 87. But um, I think things kind of got kicked into full gear mainly in 85, 86. So I'll, uh, I'll go over some few things here, and as, as, as you all have anything to contribute, just jump right in or comment at will. Um, 
so starting in 85, um, movie-wise, uh, the top three grossing movies for, for 1985 were Back to the Future, Rambo, and Rocky IV. Now, I don't know what it says when two out of the top three grossing movies are by Sylvester Stallone, but there you, there you have it. Uh, it doesn't say much. Let's put it that way. Rocky IV is underrated. It's not as bad as you remember it. Yes, it is. I guess it kind of in a subtextual way speaks to the patriotism of the times. You look at the, uh, the Sylvester Stallone movies like Rocky, Drapes Himself in the Flag, uh, First Blood, you know, Rambo is all about you know, a Vietnam veteran. I mean, it's just, you know, at that time, there was a lot of misdirected patriotism in America. Jim, um, why would you say it was misdirected patriotism? Well, I mean, um, every, on the veneer, everything was, uh, was hunky and dory and Reagan's America, but uh, it, we had one of the high, uh, highest jobless rates of all time during that time. We had, uh, there was a lot of, uh, you get a lot of the Mick jobs that we see now where people were losing um, high-paying uh, benefits, um, garnering uh, factory and manufacturing jobs uh, in droves and uh, getting jobs, you know, working the fryer at Burger King. Um, there was a lot of uh, boosterism at the time. I mean, we're being led at the time by a doddering old man who have, you know, in the throes of Alzheimer's by 1986. I mean, he was barely making sense. There was the whole thing about, um, uh, they, you know, they were joking with him about, you know, whether we're going to attack Russia. And he said the bombing begins in 15 minutes and, after having said that, Norad actually went on alert. I mean, his, his buddy Mag- Margaret Thatcher wanted to put uh, homosexuals in concentration camps during the uh, initial outbreaks of a- uh, outbreak of AIDS. Um, it's just very uh, I, I, for the rich people of the eighties. It was a very good and prosperous time, but for the, the middle and lower classes, it was not. Well, you know, one of the the mottos from the and 80s... And that's my political rant. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, geez, how do you really feel, Jim? But one of the... Um, I mean, I was only in first grade when this book came out. So, of course, I was reading at a, you know, high level... No, I'm joking. But, um, right. but one of the mottos of the 80s, Jim, was that greed is good. And how do you see that coming into play with the Watchmen? Well, you see it in a lot of the characters. I mean, you see everybody uh, pretty much just working toward their own goal, especially in, in the character of Ozymandias. I mean... He's acquired everything. He has, you know, all this money, wealth, power, fame, and you know, he's the smartest man in the world. He's the most physically fit man in the world, but it's not enough for him. Right. He has to sell action figures of himself and posters everywhere right. with his face on it. It's like his I, ego is insatiable. Yeah, and I think that's where you know we get into you know kind of what you know the other you know Jim, you and Adam both hit on it. You know, kind of the Reagan Thatcher era, and you know this kind of staunch conservatism that, you know, was going on during that period. And I think we see a lot of the characters in this book kind of embody that mindset. You know, you get the Rorschachs and the comedians where, um, and, and I, I even, I guess to a certain degree, Dr. Manhattan, where they kind of embody this, you know, what is, what is socially right, what is, you know, quote unquote, socially wrong and how they view, um, you know, people, and then how the people even, you know, view them. You know, there's, there's one scene, you know, as we'll get into the issue where, you know, the people on the street are yelling, you know, you know, homophobic statements at them and things like that. So a lot of that, right. you know, again, like I said, that Reagan-Thatcher era kind of permeates, in my mind, throughout this book, even though, you know, strangely that, you know, that era doesn't exist in this book. Um, you know, it's, Right. It's I think what he era. did was took the natural extension of the republicanism of the Nixon era, you know, with the, the entire, you know, uh, during the Vietnam 
more, you know, millions of people were marching in the street telling them to, to, you know, to get out of the war. The war was wrong. The war was bad. And yet they're, you know, they're, imagine that kind of Republican mindset, but with a giant 50 foot tall blue superhero to do your bidding and to enforce it. I think we definitely see that in this issue too, with the victory in Vietnam. And well, we'll get into that later, but I mean, imagine if Reagan had his own personal Superman, you know, to quell all the unrest. <laughs> but, but Jim, I would also add just to, just to be fair, a, uh, uh, the the perceived negativism that went with Reaganism also it it, it it's the perceived negativism because j- just just to play both sides here you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Russ, what else do you got? Um, you know, again, Gore, you know, Gorbachev's rise to power, you know, the whole, you know, it, it, it kind of, you know, I guess cooled down the Cold War to some degree, um, just because Gorbachev was seen as more of a moderate. Um, you know, than a, than a, you know, more of a staunch communist like his predecessors. So, you know, it kind of opened up the, the, you know, the, you know, things to kind of cool down a little bit. And then eventually, you know, what was in 91, where, you know, the Soviet Union, as we knew it, kind of fell apart and, you know, and, and things completely changed. Um, to see that here, although, again, as we see in the Watchmen, one of the underlying themes is doomsday. And, and even though, you know, with Gorbachev coming in, things were cooling down. The Cold War was still fully in effect. I mean, the arms race was, you know, definitely, um, you know, ever increasing. You know, we had the whole um, strategic defense in- initiative, the whole Star Wars defense system that, you know, um, Reagan was really, really pushing. Um, that you know, I like the I like the prequels better, but okay. <laughs> you you would. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so that I mean. In 85, then we have, you know, one of the other things I had, you know, and this is more of a pop culture slash social issue, is Rock Hudson died of AIDS in 1985, um, you know, which, again, just, or I'm sorry, 86, which, um, you know, again, that he was kind of the first mainstream person that really was afflicted publicly with that disease, um, you know, which, again, kind of ushered in a whole new, in my mind, a whole new perception of what that disease was and, um, you know, gave it a little bit more, uh, or gave it a better, uh, um, a more public face, uh, I'll say. You're absolutely right, Russ. I mean, most of the suburban housewives and uh, and doughy um, middle-aged uh, businessmen had no idea what AIDS was in the 80s up until Rock Hudson died. So it really brought that into the forefront. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, the other thing in 86, and this was, I remember this clearly as day, is the, you know, the shuttle Challenger um, disaster, um, you know, where the space shuttle exploded, you know, shortly after liftoff. And, uh, you know, what, you know, how, you know, what that did as far as setting back the, you know, U.S. space exploration and the, and the space program in general. It was a, it was a really strange day. And I can tell you that um, when I was in school, I think I had said I was in first grade at the time, we were on the playground. And my family lived in Winter Springs, Florida, which is a suburb of Orlando. And we were about an hour or so from the Space Coast. So when we were out on the playground, we actually, you know, and we had made this habit to go out and see the shuttle liftoffs. You know, our teacher would take us out from the portable and we would go and, and watch the shuttle take off. And I, I know this sounds crazy, but as soon as it blew up, I mean, because it was absolutely an eye shot, you know, from us, only an hour away, we could see it in the sky. It was, it's, it's surreal now thinking back to it. And I could only imagine what hysteria is. But as a six- or seven-year-old, I remember, as clear as day, like you just said, Russ, we all ran inside because, you know, this was, what, our first year in school, our parents ran around, and we just saw a gigantic explosion in the sky. 
And I mean, I, I, I don't want to draw, you know, or, or over uh, dramatize this, but I, I remember that as part of, you know, my school experience, just as in middle school when I saw that the Oklahoma City bombing happened. It's one of those things that's ingrained and etched into my head that I, I remember seeing 100 kindergartners for some reason, and I was with them all running inside. You know, I think I think all of that is is relevant really here because, you know, as we get to the end of this book, the things that, you know, that that you just mentioned is going to be fresh in the mind of the readers when this book came out. Absolutely. Definitely. I think it's really important uh especially for people coming to Watchmen for the first time to really try to understand it in the context of the time it came out. I think it it reads so much better and it's so much more deep if if you take it from that mindset. Yeah. One of the uh, other things I have is, the, of course, the Chernobyl accident, another big, and, and again, we talk about, you know, themes of Armageddon. We see the, you know, the, the, the you know, nuclear, you know, uh, symbol, you know, pasted all over the place. And, you know, when that reactor went in Chernobyl, that was, you know, hugely devastating and just kind of accentuated, again, the dangers of, you know, nuclear power, nuclear, you know, weapons, the whole you know, the whole nuclear movement and, and seeing that accident in Russia and, and the aftermath of it and, and how horrible it was, you know, again, we see, you know, mass devastation there. And, and again, those themes are definitely present in this in this book as well. Oh, yeah. There wasn't an, uh, enough uh, nuclear um, hysteria and kind of paranoia. Chernobyl really brought it to the forefront. Yeah. I mean, Three Mile Island didn't really, you know, wasn't a drop on the bucket compared to, you know, Chernobyl. So... Um, the greatest football team of all time won the Super Bowl that year. Bears won Super Bowl twenty. So, oh, oh boy. Next issue two is called yes. "Absent Friends." Russ, start us off. Okay. All right. So let's start off with the issue by issue analysis, starting with um, page one. Um, again, as we see, and we'll see this again in all twelve episodes or twelve issues, rather. Um, the first, the cover to the issue two is an extreme close-up of the first panel in, in issue two, where we see the, the head of the statue, rain falling off of it, and, uh, you know, based on the way the rain's hitting the statue, it's almost like it's weeping. Um, so again, we see kind of that tear coming down that eye in almost the same position, you know, that, that the blood splatter is on the smiley, so... It's very reminiscent of the Statue of Liberty's face as well. I was, yeah, I was just going to ask that if it was safe to say that that was, you know, pretty close to the Statue of Liberty. Definitely. Something that's really we... cool in the first few few pages uh, before you get to the meat of everything, um, Russ. I'm sorry. Uh, the um, every uh, page, I mean, uh, it, that's in purple has uh, visual irony in the first few pages here. Um, they have the one panel that says it's history as they show the the. Um, the corpse and uh, what brings you to the city of the dead when she's actually visiting the rest home. But then life goes on with the end is near sign. It's just a theme of visual irony that runs through the first few pages. Right. It's also, uh, like we mentioned last time, uh, the first panel on the first page uh, almost mirrors quite uh, precisely the last panel of the book, too. Yeah, again, one of those, you know, again, the symmetry thing going on, and like you said, we'll, we'll see that definitely more and more as, as time goes by. One of the things I noticed, especially after hearing you guys in um, issue one, that the magazine in the second panel that's, that's on uh, the bed, Nostalgia magazine, kind of made me think of um, the auto body shop from the first issue, um, 
you know, what was it, uh, antique specialty in um, obsolete, models. obsolete models, right? And now we have Nostalgia Magazine, which is certainly telling of um, her story. Sally which Taylor. is by Adrian's company, interestingly enough. And it's interesting that it's linked to a perfume. Um, what I would say is that while nostalgia and that idea of reminiscence, which for all intents and purposes with Lori's mom is the golden age, and the analogy being the golden age of comics is that while you know it's, it's, it's sweet, it's, it's still very much something that's superficial at this point. But, I mean, America has always been very concerned with, with what has happened in its past. And what I would say as far as this goes is that um, this is, I don't know, is, is this her current mask that to, to be perfumed and, and flowers and everything else? She might not have the cape on, figuratively, but here is Lori's mom, and it's one of those situations where, and we'll see this in just a few pages, where she is literally clinging on to the past. Right. Yeah, that, that's how I oh, took yeah. it more is, you know, the nostalgia is just another, you know, uh, foreshadowing to, to her life. I mean, she, you know, she, her feelings of the past as compared to her feelings of the present or the future are just polar opposite. And even though in the past, as we'll see, she's been through some pretty rough stuff. She keeps mentioning the past, City of the Dead, and then she also um, has the, um, the Gardens uh, Rest Resort. Nepenthe, I think, is some, some sort of... Um, it's uh, the Egyptian land of the dead, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't that where that comes from? Also, well, she has a copy of the magazine which says Nova Express, which was based off of another, and, and here they come up again, and this will actually come up when we meet Moloch in this issue, but Moore takes his cues from the Beat Generation. Nova Express, written by William S. Burroughs, um, for whom, and I think we mentioned this last episode, for whom he believes that the Watchmen had the... Uh, most influenced from, if you can call it that, from a, a, a fiction standpoint, a prose fiction standpoint, excuse me. Um, Nova Express, and I had read this years ago, I think that if you get into the literature end of things, you don't just read the, the Moby Dick stuff, you don't just read the, the, the Kurt Vonnegut stuff or whatever, but I, I think everybody kind of has a beat phase. Jim, could you speak to that? I definitely did when I got my... English degree. I did a paper on the Beats and um, actually met Gregory Corso when I lived down in uh, California. But really? I understand. Yeah, he was kind of on hard times at the time and stuff, but uh, he, he was he's still had his head together, I guess, as much as he could after going through everything he had. But uh, getting back to the, the book, it definitely has um, been influences all through it. Like you were saying in the last episode, Rorschach's um, journal really sounds like stream of consciousness poetry, kind of like the Sal Paradise stuff that he writes in um, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, The Black right, Dossier. Right. And uh, I think it all ties together. I mean, it definitely definitely has a love of that period of literature, and it definitely shows in his, in, uh, in Rorschach more, most of all, I think. I like the um, page two, the middle panel on the top. Um, in the end, you just wash your hands of it and shut it away, and, and you have Rorschach's hands... Uh, the ink from the uh, poster that he's holding, the end is nigh, is kind of running off on his hands. If you look right. down at and then the next purple panel, life goes on, life goes on right next to the end is near. Right. And then without your health, where are you at the bottom of the page as they're lowering the casket? Right. Uh, I think it's interesting to point out uh, in this uh, society there's a that uh, Lori's smoking something different. I'm not sure exactly what that's supposed to be. But uh, it's got some type of ball, and you should see on the first page that she's putting some type of 
I'm not sure what in into that ball and line it up. Uh, I think that's kind of interesting. That uh, I'm not sure what that's supposed to be. Does anyone have Maybe any that has on? stronger overtones from the last page with the Egyptian uh, apparently Egyptian makeup that we saw when Laurie and Dan were out. Yeah, yeah, now that you mention it, it does kind of have that Egyptian you know feel to it. You know that that style of you know pipe or whatever whatever you want. To I also thought about. the line. Um, how she says extinguished at the end of page two, just sort of, you know, right, right. The whole, the whole death theme and seems to accentuate the word extinguished. It's in its, it's in its own separate balloon almost. With the beginning of page three, they have that big panel on the top, uh, and kind of focuses in on, uh, Vites or Ozymandias, Dr. Manhattan and, uh, Night Owl too. And I think uh, you see a lot in their expressions on how they're feeling. It looks like uh, Night Out 2 or Dan Dryberg uh, sincerely uh, is there and feeling sorry. Dr. Manhattan seems like he doesn't really want to be there. Uh, it looks like he's got a far-off look. And uh, it just looks like, it almost looks like Ozymandias is falling asleep or, or just there for appearance's sake. Right. The cool thing about that panel is it sets up almost the whole... Uh, first two-thirds of the issue because the entire story is told from the flashbacks of those three men as they're standing there looking over the grave. Well, if um, Dr. Manhattan's looking to anything, it's probably to the stars. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a quick nod to, you know, the not-too-distant future for him, and also you see Moloch right behind Dan. And even if you go back just for a second to page one, the last panel, you know, you can see Dr. Manhattan looking the other way again. It seems like every shot of him... He's always looking in the opposite direction of everybody else. Just as we talked about, you know, he's off into space. He's not, you know, maybe he's not even quite human anymore. That being yeah, said, don't you think it's funny that <laughs> he has a limo take him there when he doesn't really need a limo? Is this right. just another case of, you know, absolute <laughs> wealth or nepotism? Right. I like the part where Laurie says they even made him wear clothes. <laughs> if you look at the bottom of page three, when they placed the flag on the coffin, did anybody else notice that's not like proper flag folding for for that type of ceremony? Well, in, just in general. Oh right, it would be a triangle, right? Yeah, yeah. It would yeah. be the uh, trifold if my uh, Boy Scout uh, sensibilities kicked in correctly just now. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. I don't yeah, know if anybody else. British, though, he might not know that. And that's what I thought of. You know, is that just a is that just a Gibbons thing slash more thing? You know, because they're British and they're not American. Or, or, you know, I couldn't really find anything else to read into that, so I just, but I just thought I'd point that out. That's a good catch, though, because I didn't notice that either. You said it. Very good catch. I don't know, that might mean something, because they, they probably still did have uh, an editor um, from who was American, possibly. I'm trying to look back, see if it lists anybody, but uh, I don't know, maybe that says something, too. Um, Sometimes an improperly folded flag is just an improperly folded flag. That could be it. <laughs> what, what about uh, the guys who are folding the flag? Uh, I find it interesting that they're not in military uniform for what appears to be uh, a military, some type of, uh, almost looks like some type of old, beginning 19th century type outfit. It's definitely a uniform of some sort, but not, not a military uniform that I'm aware of. Right. And also, it's a it's a public funeral for an an espoused um, covert operative for the government in the comedian. Yeah, that's yeah, also you think true. If you saw if people saw Doctor Manhattan standing in a graveyard, someone would notice. 
<laughs> yeah. Gee, I wonder whose funeral that is. <laughs> go to, moving on to page four. I really thought this was interesting with the uh, the, the Tijuana Bible. You would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I might have a few, but um, <laughs> you know, it, it's again, it's that it's that paradox that seems to be the theme. You know, uh, we're about to get to a, a terrible thing that happened to this woman um, sexually, but yet she misses the attention. You know, again, it's the nostalgia. She she's almost happy that she was wanted then, um, as compared to now. And, and don't you think it's it's funny that. The young, the young one is kind of the, I guess, prudish, you know, oh, I can't believe you're looking at this. I can't believe that you let them do this to you. And the, and the older one, you know, is, is kind of all into it. And, you know, it's just, you know, there's nothing, you know, wrong with it. They did it all the time. You know, it was flattering, you know, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's kind of, you know, almost like gender reversal. You know, you would think the, you know, the mother, you know, the, the older would, you know, be more prudish and, you know, against those kind of things. And the younger one would be, um, you know, all, all about that. Right. The, the cool thing about it is first, um, the, um, uh, juxtaposition all throughout Watchmen. One of the big ones is comedy and tragedy. That's why you get the smiley face with the blood on it. And this is another example of that. You have a comic book made of a tragic event of a woman's rape, you know? Right. It's like, uh, Jacques Tati, the famous French comedian said, you know, tragedy today, comedy tomorrow. You know, a lot of times we laugh at things that are tragic, you know, when they first happen. I always, but, uh, I think it's interesting how um, the the group photo at the bottom of the page is set up such that we see this again and again. I would say more recently in uh, the Justice League from Identity Crisis forward. But I, I always feel, I always felt, excuse me, that the folks in this Golden Age photo are more analogous or, or more similar to the Justice League than, say, the Avengers. And I say this because, and, and we'll go through this as, as we get to it, but the more or less, not, not so much the social agenda, but the truth, justice, in the American way agenda that the Justice League has perfected and also attempted to perfect over the last how many decades. Nobody poses for more pictures in comics than the Justice League. I, I promise you that. If you look from Brad Meltzer's run backwards... Um, of of JLA, you know, you'll see that. But well, it's interesting. It was, Go ahead, Jim. I was going to say it's probably closer to the JSA, if you think about it, because the JLA actually had a lot of people on it with superpowers, whereas the JSA, like half the like the the Golden Age Adam, his superpower was he was short and could fight. You know, and none of these people, except for the Moth guy who can fly, have any super abilities at all. Where in the original JSA, the original Mystery Man is basically just guys in tights who could punch, you know. It wasn't until later that, you know, with Superman and everything that, you know, people got, you know, actual super abilities. I don't know. It just, it just reminds me more of the Golden Age uh, heroes. And then later, I, I guess, it would be more of the JLA type thing. Well, well, I, I, I get what you're that... saying, though, about the American way and, you know, being you know, boosters for, for the USA and all that. I only say that because of the, let's just say, museum-like qualities with where they're meeting, where it has um, um, Moloch's um, solar weapon, the, that array, and it has all these other things encased. And that, I, I understand why, why excuse me, time-wise, and, and I guess even lineage-wise, it's closer to JSA. But t to me, I just had that JLA jump out, to me, more so than the other. But I'm also a more modern-age reader than, but, you know, even though I read JSA now. Great, another old joke. Thanks, buddy. 
<laughs> I think it's also what I like uh, about this issue is the um it's it's kind of the secret origin of the comedian as seen in flashbacks. First we get Sally Jupiter's, then Adrian Feats, then Doctor Manhattan's, then Night Owls, and then finally Moloch's. And we learn all about the comedian by seeing him in different parts of his life. And this is the first time we see him obviously is here. Reed, go for it. I think it's interesting to uh, point out his uh, costume. It, it's definitely a lot different than uh, anything that we've seen as of yet. It's uh, more flashy, and um, he's definitely, I, I believe he's supposed to be the youngest member, is what I've read somewhere. Yeah, they said that a yeah. few times. Yeah, and he's, uh, he's kind of got that charming type attitude uh, at the beginning when they first introduce him, uh, or trying to be in his own way. Uh, but I think that's definitely a first step in, in what we see throughout the rest of this issue, like Jim said. He's on his way to that gimp mask. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, to point out, uh, he doesn't have the smiley face button at this point. He does have a, what looks uh, like a red, it is a smiley face, but it's, it's a different looking red, uh, like shield on his belt. Right. Uh, so that, that will changes again as the issue goes on uh going back to the jla comment i just noticed this uh on the top panel on page five uh behind the chair has some type of emblem on that um i don't know if that's supposed to be mothman's uh emblem jla type all right a little thing. shield yeah yep yeah you're right yeah. i also read that uh i believe his name's dollar bill or that character is uh one of the only uh, characters, maybe him and Mothman, that actually don't say anything in these pages. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of go into the story of Dollar Bill and the prose part at the end of this issue about where he came from and stuff. Right, I thought that was kind of interesting. The uh, Looking at the bottom of page four, again, we have, and we'll see this repeatedly, so I'll try not to repeat myself too many times, um, but again, we have the cinematic transition. You know, we have on the... the the, on the bottom row of page four, the first panel is kind of the start of the transition where she's looking at the photo and then the light reflects off it just right. Then we cut to the big flash and then boom, we're into, you know, you know, full live action of what was going on when that picture was taken. And, you know, it just, again, going back, knowing the movie is, is coming, hopefully, hopefully coming, um, you know, seeing these kind of uh, transitions will be just incredible when it gets to the big screen. Okay, here, here's a question for you. Now, I, I re-listened to what we had said on the last episode about, and I, and I think we were all in agreement, that there are so many cinematic aspects of this book. Now, digging into the Watchmen movie and, you know, current issues or whatever that may be facing it now, um, when this movie was in pre-production earlier and when Terry Gilliam was uh, attached and semi-attached from Monty Python fame and, of course, his other works like uh, 12 Monkeys and everything else that he's done, um, he had gone on record with saying that Watchmen is unfilmable, and it seems that Alan Moore is in complete agreement with this. Now, the question is this. If the professionals of the film, and in Moore's case, the comic industry, are saying that Watchmen is unfilmable, then why is it that our response as a group and as individuals since the get-go is, I can completely see this on, on the um, silver screen? It, it's interesting. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting comment, definitely. Um, do you think maybe they were concerned more about the density of it, that no matter 
how good a job movie makers did, they could never get the full scope of this book into a two, three hour movie. I think, I think what they're too, um, go ahead, man. I think what they're really trying to get at is uh, both Al Moore and Terry Gilliam are more of that mindset of the underlying theme, and I think that's what they're more concerned about than the big flashy action scenes and, and getting the page just right. And that might be uh, where their concerns. They're not going to get uh, the point across of what the book did. Oh, I was just going to say that there's so much uh, source material here, and it is so dense. I think the first reason that they probably thought it would be unfilmable is just because they would. It's all a matter of where you make the cut. I know that Zack Snyder is going to have to cut some of this to make it fit into a commercially sized movie and not making you know, a twelve-hour epic extravaganza. Um, maybe they thought that the soul of the work couldn't be kept without cutting, and maybe Zack Snyder found a, a way to do it. The second thing is, I think that at the time they tried to make Watchmen before there hadn't been enough superhero movies out that the the public really latched onto like now we we've we've had spider-man we've had the dark knight which is the second great biggest grossing movie of all time and all these other things and then in the 80s watchmen came along after we had read all different kinds of superheroes and and been kind of saturated with them and now the watchmen movie is coming along at about the same point in time that the movie industry is saturated with superheroes so i'm i'm hoping and wondering if it's going to have the same effect on the industry as um, you know, the graphic novel did on the comics industry because I was reading something this week. Warner Brothers wants to bring you know reboot Superman and do Green Lantern and the Flash and all these characters, but they want to do them in a dark way because the Dark Knight was so popular. Oh, no Robocop for John? Oh, it's I'm coming. Sorry. Robocop. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, I think after Watchmen, it might even be – if Watchmen is a success, it might even – I mean, the same trend happened in comics in the 80s. We had the whole grim and gritty thing going on, you know. So, hey Adam, do you know when that comment was made? What year? Which one? The 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 whole the one we were just speaking about with the whole unfilmable movie. Do you know when? What year? Um, I'd have to look it up. Go ahead and, and you guys talk. Um, page six and page seven. Once we get going on this, um, <clears throat> this is the comedian and uh, Lori's mom really going head to head, and this scene is probably one of the most jarring ones, I would say, on a, on a personal uh, nitty-gritty level, in which the comedian attempts, well, excuse me, successfully, sex, sex, successfully sexually assaults um, Lori's mom, only to have intervention from one of the other heroes. Yeah, I, I really, as soon as I read this, I, I jotted down that I wanted to ask Jim um, if he remembers reaction to this when it hit the stands, because this is pretty... Serious stuff for a comic book, you know, a DC label comic book. I mean, he's got her pinned on the ground, you know, he's taking his pants off, he punches her in the face, she's bleeding profusely. I mean, I thought this was pretty tough stuff, and I, I wanted to ask you that, Jim. It was pretty rough. Um, I, I do remember that uh, this is around the time that we started getting things like The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, first, comics and Eclipse comics were coming out with mature titles as well as that time, at that time. And I do know that some, uh, some t- I mean, I was, uh, I think, 16 when this came out. But um, I, I do know that a lot of titles they kept behind the counter, and this was definitely one of them. Uh, I also remember being struck myself when I read it, which is how with how brutal it was and how, you know, real. I mean, there aren't, there's no, there aren't any sound effects. The only sound effects are their, their own exhalations and, and curses and whatnot. And uh, it just, I don't know, it just struck me as so brutal when I, when I read it. And it still does, I mean. 
just the choreography of it all. And as as you guys said before, it's very cinematic the way Gibbons draws it. He, you know, there are mid mid level shots, there are close ups, and he pulls away. You see the reflection of the fight in Moloch's uh, mirror. You know, you see the, uh, different points of view in almost every panel. Right, and that panel on the right in the middle mirrors the panel of the comedian getting thrown out the window. It's like exactly the same shot. You're um, right on on page seven. Right. Yeah. 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 Also, the him getting scratched in the face mirrors what happens to him later in this issue. Right. From the Vietnamese woman he impregnated. Yeah. Now, Jim, on that note, and an, an idea here, back in Identity Crisis, um, Doctor Light, we we found out that Doctor Light um, successfully sexually assaulted again um, Sue Dibney, and there has been a lot of vim and vigor coming out against that character. Um, and, and the decision to have such an adult-themed hard edge to, to a mainstream book that's, that was in D.C., but Identity Crisis was such a huge hit for them as well. Uh, as far as new readers, a lot of people jumped on, including myself, to current continuity with that book. My question is this. Um, do people hold the comedian as a character to the same standard that they did to Dr. Light in a similar situation? Hmm. I don't think he, the, the comedian didn't have a history. Like Dr. Light did. Dr. Light has been around since the 60s. Um, also, it, also, Watchmen definitely takes place outside of regular DCU continuity. I mean, I think both those things factored in. But, I mean, definitely the comedian in this issue cements his place as a villain. I mean, but I understand what you're saying. But I think because it's out of continuity, it really didn't have the, you know, the vehement and the, you know, the venom that you're talking about, you know, the, the outpouring of, of anger or whatever. And we'll see, you know, I won't, I won't spoil what's coming, but we'll see something come down the road that makes you question this whole, this whole incident. You know, when, when, when we see, you know, the relationship of, you know, the comedian and, and Sally Jupiter, you know, when we fast forward a little bit and, and what the results are of that, it, it just really made me question this, this, whole, this whole rape scene and the, whole, the way that, you know, the comedian treated her. It's a good point, place to point out uh, the clock about above the comedian as he's walking out of the room. is uh looks like about uh, 5 to midnight at that point. I know that's different than what is at the uh, beginning of this chapter. But uh, I, I saw that as something as, you know, this is something bad happening. It's moving closer to that, that midnight time. So right. I don't know if anyone else saw that or had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I saw the clock, but I didn't think about that, that it was moving closer from this act, was bringing them closer to, you know, the end. That's a pretty good point. Plus, we find out Hooded Justice's nasty little secret on this page. Right. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting um, on the previous page, on page six, uh, the middle panel on the top, you know, the dialogue, we've kind of been equating the comedian to America or, or being the you know, kind of the symbol for the American um, in this story. And he has that sense of entitlement, you know. He gives us the old, uh, you know, I know what you need, you got to have some for me. You know, he, he has that sense of entitlement. It's, it's that greed again. You know, he always wants, wants, wants. And again, if you put it in the context of the time, I mean, as we see on page, on page five, it's, you know, October of 1940. And if you think about, you know, about the, you know, that time in, in society, you know, rape and sexual assault, you know, those things weren't talked about and people, you know, the crimes were 
horribly underreported. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they, they still stay underreported, unfortunately, but, you know, back then even more so. So, again, you have this act that takes place, and, you know, when you look at the aftermath of it, 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 it just it's like, okay, it happened, and these characters move on, you know, whereas nowadays it's hard to put yourself in that mindset because nowadays you'd be thinking, okay, you know, she'd be plotting her revenge or, you know, they, you know, you know, they, you know, six guys would come and, you know, beat this guy, you know, to a pulp and, you know, they boot him out and, you know, all these other things that would go on if this were, you know, you know, flash forward, you know, 19, you know, 80s, 80s, 90s-ish on forward, you know, but again, we're flashed back to 1940 and, you know, the attitudes and the views on this type of crime were, you know, much, much different than they are than they are now. Right. Well, this yeah, one and this rape doesn't even get reported really until Hollis Mason writes his book. Right. Right. Because he even says in the uh, protest piece in this issue that it gets hushed up, swept under the carpet. You know, you have that first panel. Here she is, bloodied in this from this sexual crime, and then the second panel. You know, the the comic books portrayal of her. She's just having a great time with men, and you know, again, it's that juxtaposition that we've been talking about comic and the tragic right and then what did you guys think of hooded justice's you know comment i mean you know if we look at on page you know eight first panel it's you know get up and for god's sakes cover yourself you know to me it um, it doesn't show compassion or it's almost like he doesn't feel sorry for her or, or you know to me it's it's like to some degree he thinks well you know and, and, and this is horrible but you know it's almost like she was asking for it you know the way she dresses the way she just walked into a you know an open room and just started undressing herself well, like you were saying, the, the mores were very different back time back then, and this kind of thing would have been hushed up. It wouldn't have been out in the papers like it would be now, and it wouldn't have been a, a public thing. Um, before we go on to page nine, guys, I have an annotation for um, the Terry Gilliam quote. Um, the dateline is thir- uh, November the 13th of 2000. This is from Empire Online. We could put a link to this in our forum thread. It says, Fear and Loathing director Terry Gilliam revealed that he has no further plans to bring a cult comic Watchmen to the screen as he doesn't believe it would be possible to stay true to the spirit of the comic. Quote, the problem with Watchmen is that it requires about five hours to tell the story properly. And by reducing it to a two or two and a half hour film, it seemed to me to take away the essence of what Watchmen was about. I was happy when I didn't get the money to make it because... I would have been I would have been embarrassed if we'd done it. They have it. I didn't look at what he was working with in that time. What did we have in what ninety seven, ninety eight? You know, the most recent you know Batman movie was Batman and Robin. You know, so Ugh. you know that you know when we get when we get that to compare with you know the last run of superhero movies because the Marvel stuff really hadn't. I guess X Men had just come out in Blade, but um, mm-hmm. you know, again, we we didn't see a. a um, you know, a continuous, you know, trend in the superhero genre, you know, that we that we have now. And I think it's just, you know, movies like The Dark Knight, movies like Three Hundred, you know, have 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 told the, you know, the world, you know, with their with their, you know, box office receipts that, you know, you can do this material and it can be serious and it doesn't have to be all campy and silly, um, and people will like it. And and I, I, you know, I just see, you know. This being perfect, you know, timing couldn't be better in my mind for this movie to come out. Let's just hope we don't end up with a grim and gritty Green Lantern movie or something. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's always my fear: is the suits take it too far and you know say, "Oh, this is the for- new formula," and you know they beat it to death. But all right, so back on 
page eight. The ones I have uh, something here at the bottom of page eight, middle panel, where uh, Sally says, um, "Well, things are tough all over Cupcake, and it rains on the just and the unjust alike, except in California." And the next panel we go to is is Vite, and if you notice, he's the only one that's sitting there with he has an umbrella over him. So. You know, her comment is it rains on the just and the unjust alike, but here we have in the next panel a character where it's basically not raining on. He's above it all. Exactly. Carrying over into page nine, you know, again, we have this, you know, uh, once again, a cinematic transition where we, you know, we're looking at Ozymandias and it gets closer and closer and closer until, you know, the, 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 the extreme close-up is uh, him and his mask. And again, we have kind of where we get these, these panels where somebody says something in one panel and says the exact opposite in the next panel or you know what they say in one panel you know has has a meaning in the next panel where at, at the on the third panel on page nine it says of whom we may of whom may we seek succor but of thee O lord who for our sins are justly displeased and then in the next panel we have we firstly let me say i'm pleased to see so many of you here very pleased so you know we have a quote where you know you know where they're talking about displeasure, and then in the next next panel, we get right into the fact that you know, you know, Captain Metropolis is saying how, how pleased I am for him to be here. So, you know, again, the, the transitions are just genius in my mind. Right. I'd also add that um, the comedian when <laughs> when he when he burps, that, that reminded me of last issue scene with Dan and Rorschach when Rorschach was acting like an animal around you know Dan polite company. So in Roll Call here, we have Janie Slater, who was uh, Dr. Manhattan's first wife, Dr. Manhattan. We have uh, Captain Metropolis, who was one of the original uh, Minutemen. We have Ozymandias. There's uh, the comedian reading the paper. Night Owl, Alan Rorschach, supposedly, I guess when they were working together as a pair, because he mentioned that in a couple pages, and Silk Spectre. And Dr. Manhattan's eyes are elsewhere, as usual. Yeah, he's definitely checking out Laurie. And if you notice how slim and trim everybody looks, I mean, you look at Rorschach, you look at, you know, Night Owl, they're, you know, these guys are at peak right there. You know, they're not the kind of the schlubby guys that we saw at the beginning of the book. Likewise, um, when we get to page 10, um, Rorschach's speech and the dialogue bubbles, the word balloons that you spoke of last episode, he's talking like everybody else yet. Right. Yep. That's exactly the point I was going to bring up. So this must take place before the events that happened in issue 6. To him, because that's when he starts talking all gravelly and weird. But it must be before the Keen Act, because they're all still adventuring. Yeah, they're active. And if you look, you know, one of the things where they talk about their crime fighting, and we see it on the, you know, the map that you know comes up where he's got everything kind of outlined, is most of it's, you know, what they're going after as far as crime fighting isn't like street level punks and thieves and murderers and um, you know bank robbers and the traditional kind. The, the criminals they're going after are more, or, or, the, or the crime, quote-unquote, they're going after are more moral, or what's perceived as, as immoral, you know, where we have promiscuity and anti-war demonstrations, drugs, um, you know, those kind of things, where it's, you know, you would think if, if you're a bunch of crime fighters, you'd be, you know, in the, in the traditional, you know, costume superhero sense, they're going after, you know, bank robbers and megalomaniacs and, you know, people that want to take over the world and, and things like that, so... I just, I just thought it was interesting, you know, what their motivations are for um, for doing what they do. And it seems to be, like I said, more centered on, you know, their perceived morality than, than you know, truth and justice. 
Also, he has on there black unrest, <laughs> and I understand the point that that they're trying to make with this. This is such old guard mentality, and it's That's such, exactly what I was going to say. He's it's, from it's, the forties, you know. It's, it's He's ridiculous. It's like, about. well, you know, we'll have to walk on pins and needles around this if they get uppity or or whatever the case is. I mean, this this I mean, it's laughable. It's laughable, and I understand why the comedian sees that as laughable in in the grand scope of things because. He has, uh, Captain Metropolis has dated himself. He has absolutely dated himself and set him apart despite all of his um, Alan Scott, Jay Garrick uh, leadership, Golden Age-esque inclinations with this group. Comedian even puts into words, he says, what it is, Nelly, is that you're getting old and you want to go on playing cowboys and Indians. Right. So he's coming from the 1940s mentality, totally, with a black unrest and anti-war uh, riots or anti-war demos. It says, "I'm sorry." And the comedians coming from the uh, the very much you know post uh, Cuban Missile Crisis stance of you know, well, you might as well burn it up because it's going to explode anyway. And, and it, it's just know, it's so it's so targeted that it's not social unrest. It's look at this group that's having this you know big. They're being complaint. promiscuous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Quick, let's stop them. Morality. Yeah. It's the forties morality he tries to impose it on the nineteen I guess this would be the nineteen sixties, right? The golden it'd be like the silver age of, of superheroes. Because the Keen Act goes through in seventy seven. Right. Well he he mentions that in his in his closing I think in his closing argu- arguments, doesn't he say something like it's coming you know that that basically the Keen the Keen Act is coming? Or is that no, that's further along, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's later with the when he's with Night Owl. That's okay. He does say, though, um, in 30 years, the nukes are going to be flying like Maybugs. Yeah. Further up on the page where, you know, again, here's here's Ozymandias saying, you know, the world's problems aren't insurmountable. All it takes is a little intelligence. You know, whereas the comedian is like, you know, you know it's going to take force and action and, you know, you know, in your face doing something about it. Whereas Ozymandias thinks, no, if we just... You know, we can use technology and you know our minds to to get past the problems that we have. So we again we start to see where where his character you know is now and where it, you know where it's going. Right. He even gives him the line. Uh, then Ozzy here is going to be the smartest man on the cinder. Yeah. I love the line in that panel too, where he says, "See you in the funny papers." And then the the eighth uh, panel on this page, or I'm sorry, the next to last panel on this page. Um, not to spoil anything. But this really is where the grand plan is set in motion, I think. Because he hears him say, somebody has to save the world. Somebody has to do it, don't you see? And you can see the wheels are definitely turning as he's holding the remnants of that you know, map. Exactly, exactly. I think that's where the light went on for him. And then, you know, again, we get that transition back. Right, the savior. Going on to, to page 12, Yeah, we have, again, this is something Jim's talked about you know, quite often is the whole... Um, you know, use use of height and perspective, where you know we're all looking down on, um, you know, on the the funeral, um, and then you know, like I said again, another transition where we get the, the the close up and then the and then the movement. It's very telling that we're looking down on everyone when we're about to tell Dr. Manhattan's story. Yeah, yeah. So on page thirteen, they they talk about. Uh, you know, he says, "I suppose VBN night must mean something to them." So again, here, uh, our you know our, our other clue, you know, timeline difference, you know, from our world, you know, here we go, you know, victory in Vietnam as opposed to, you know, to, to what happened. 
and then you know the, the biggest thing in, in panel two there where the comedian says i mean if we'd lost this and lost is highlighted this war i don't know i think it might have driven us a little crazy you know as a country and it's just like you know obviously we you know and, uh, you know i guess depending who you talk to you know we didn't exactly win vietnam so um and, and, you know, all of the things that went on in this country in the late 60s and the protest movement and everything else and, you know, everything that was going on obviously didn't happen in this world. So, again, to see that juxtaposition of, you know, what's going on in this world as compared to what happened in our world because, you know, we didn't, you know, we got, in, you know, tied up in a, in a war we couldn't win and, and, you know, protracted and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, we see that as we move down the, the panel, there's a lot of reference to, um, you know, he's like, I'm going to be, you know, on the on the, you know, taking the first chopper out of here, you know, where, you know, out of Saigon, where in, in reality, you know, the, the, the images are always of the last chopper leaving Saigon, you know, right at the fall. So, and this you know, is the here first we, chopper arriving. Exactly, yeah. So here we see, you know, Saigon wasn't, uh, you know, the, the, the last, you know, escape out of, out of the country. It was, you know, the place where it was, cele- you know, victory was celebrated. And it's also V for Victory. This is mission accomplished from a couple years ago. They just don't have a banner up. Yeah. And it's Nixon instead of Bush. And it's really mission accomplished. I mean, you know, the, the war is over. I mean, without question. You know, no Andrew Nixon no, says VVN August 1971. Yeah. On yeah. the bottom of the podium here. And it's already cool. Americanized. There's a Miller Lite sign. There's a Coca-Cola sign. Mm-hmm. Wait till that super Walmart gets in, boys. That's right. And moving to to page fourteen, we get another violent scene. You know, with with uh, Blake and the comedian, we see how he gets that scar, that nasty scar on his face that we saw at the very beginning um, of the of the you know issue one. Um, and again, on on the, if you look on the the lower left hand panel on page fourteen, we see the the smiley button and. Again, we see the blood splatter right in the same spot that it was, you know, at, at, at the beginning. Right. And, you know, the comedian's uh, promiscuity here <laughs> that Captain Metropolis would probably like to curb, you know, this is just indicative of a lot of the things that the GIs ran into overseas back then. My, my dad was, um, when my dad went to Vietnam, drafted, uh, he was, he worked at an ammo dump. And, all you know, although he has been not reluctant or hesitant, but... Uh, very self-contained with what he has said about that era. What he has told me has amounted to more of the same of which we've seen here, which, going back to issue one, has been desolation, which has been the a low point of the human condition, and which has been drug use and abuse by soldiers to get by, and an absolute, I don't know, disdain, discourse, for, from the native population of of the country that they were in, yeah. the comedian yeah, sits in for America, yeah. and just the way he feels about women in general. I mean, it just he he could he could care less about you know, this woman or her condition or you know what you know what her problems are going to be. It's just it's all about him. And you know, you'd think after he has a really you know bad luck. Every time he mistreats a woman, it seems like he gets his rear end handed to him, and it, it doesn't seem to stop him. He's like the ultimate ugly American. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then once we get to page page fifteen, the first thing he screams out is "medic, medic," and he's not you know wanting a medic for her; he's wanting a medic for him. 
and and then you know in you know typical fashion you know not taking responsibility for your you know yourself or your actions what does he do he blames it on manhattan oh it you know it's your fault you could have turned the bullet into something else you could have stopped this you know you know you know basically you let it happen you're just as guilty as i am there's this really weird undercurrent with manhattan that i think he wants to see things like this murder for example just for his own I don't know, pragmatic interests so that he can kind of see everything he can because he can. Yeah, I mean, you look at his position in the second to the last pa- uh, panel on the page. It's, he's not, I mean, there's no, ex- there's no exclamation in his voice. He's not yelling these things at him. He's, it's almost like he's stating them matter-of-factly. And then we get, you know, second to the last panel on the page, and he's you know, got his, you know, his hand rests under his chin, like, hmm, that's interesting. And, you know, he's just kind of taking it in for what it is and not, you know, again, like you, like you said, Adam, no emotion, no, you know, he's he just, he's watching it happen as it happens. And as we, as we learn, you know, more about his powers, again, we, we won't spoil ahead, but, you know, he's kind of, maybe his stance is it has to happen. You know, he doesn't like looking at it, but he knows that it's setting things in motion and he's not going to change anything. Or maybe it already happened in his mind. Right. Like we were talking yeah. about last week. Yeah. Well, I think it's more, you know, more evidence of him losing his humanity. I mean, you know, I mean, yes, he, he kind of puts up a protest, but, you know, not very loudly. And, you know, to him, it's, you know, I don't think he, he, he thinks very much of it. Yeah, Blake is right, though. He could have stopped in a million ways, and he doesn't. And he tells him he's turning into a flake. God help us all. And... This is something I just noticed just now. He's phased through the through the table, like it's just like he just walked through the table to look back in there. His foot, you know, you can see his foot disappears through the table. It's oh wow! Indi- right, which indicates he really could have stopped it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If if that's his reflex, then absolutely he could have stopped the bullet. Now, if, as we move on to page sixteen, I'm going to ask you guys to to comment on this because I really didn't have. I kind of thought about it and thought about it, but didn't really have anything. Too much to 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 add to it is we see on the, on the first three panels on page 16 it's earth to earth and we see Ozymandias we see ashes to ashes and it's Manhattan and then dust to dust which is Night Owl and mm-hmm. you know I I get the ashes to ashes thing just because um, you know with with Manhattan because he can kind of be anywhere and everywhere and just can kind of you know I don't know just well think about it think about it this way if you would. Earth to Earth is the world's the epitome of all humankind. Ashes to ashes, Dr. Manhattan's origin is based on him being totally disintegrated and left nothing but ashes. Dust to dust, Dryberg's whole superhero life is covered with dust. We got that in the right. last issue. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, that's so uh, the that's, three of them. That's, that's the only one that really made, you know, that was apparent to me. But, but yeah, that... that those other two are great observations. That looks like about a three-quarter page splash at the um, on 16 with Night Owl 2 and the comedian in their ship. Um, this, I re- really think this is one of the great um, splashes in, in the comic. I really enjoy looking at that uh, issue, excuse me, at that page and panel. Um, this panel, in part, was recreated in Alex Ross's book, Marvels, um, during the time when Phil Sheldon, the reporter in that book, a pho- and photojournalist is uh, more or less retelling the the main plot lines and, and points and etc. of the Marvel universe. Uh, Namor is attacking 
uh, New York and has sent the uh, most of Atlantis, excuse me, out after the, the citizens. Um, there is an, an Atlantean uh, ship that doesn't have exact re- resemblance to, to the owl ship, but at the same time, if you look in close um, on, in that particular issue of Marvels, you can see Night Owl, you can see Silk Spectre um, in there, as well as um, the comedian. And I think it's interesting that also in that issue of Marvels, um, just a f- or excuse me, in that com- complete saga of Marvels, uh, just a few pages before, I'm looking at my uh, hardcover right now, that there's a guy with a sandwich board that reads Judgment Day, I Have Proof. And this is, he says, this is but an end. The end is coming. Well, he's up to his ankles in water, foreshadowing the oncoming attack by Namor. And I, that reads exactly like um, the man who has the sign, the end is nigh, who we know to be Rorschach in it. And I think um, when Alex Ross and Kurt Busiek took that into account, they had to have been thinking Watchmen with the sandwich board guy. The scene is in the trailer, too, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, but he doesn't have the, the get mask on. And here he is. He's aching. He's aching to use those rubber bullets. This is Captain America, the American ideal, truth, justice, and all the great Superman stuff, too, gone haywire. Right. But I don't think America twisted him, though. I think that this is his own mind at, at unrest, though. I, I know. I understand that he symbolizes and, and, or, and can be uh, a comparison to America, but I don't think America did it. I haven't seen it yet. I, I haven't seen it yet. I was just going to say, there's that great line on the, I think it's on the next page where he goes, what happened to the, when Nidal asks, what happened to the American dream? And the comedian says, it came true. You're looking at it. It's funny, too, because George Carlin has a quote. He says, the reason why they call it the American dream is you have to be asleep to believe it. <laughs> I like that last panel on 17. Protection? Who are we protecting them from? Yeah, and then there's that newspaper that says the cops say, let them do it. Yeah. I guess it's why they went on strike, because of vigilantes. And this must be after Under the Hood came out, because one of the women, uh, one of the women yells to the comedian that he's a pig and a rapist. Yeah. It also says yeah. on that same paper, uh, real small print, Senator Keene proposes uh, emergency bill. So that's uh, foreshadowing the Keene Act as well. Look at the crazy look on the comedian's face right in the middle panel as he yells, Ha, look at him run, you suckers. That's yeah. definitely uh, Shades of Garth Ennis <laughs> right there with that crazy look. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, the guy's been basically given free reign. I mean, you know, you look at, you know, he's he's been an agent of the government to do pretty much what he pleases. So you look at, you know, what he was able to do in Vietnam and, you know, and forward. So, you know, this is a guy that, you know, basically has no boundaries and nobody's nobody's ever really imposed him on him. And again, and like guess, Russ said, uh, last issue, you see who watches the Watchmen, but it's not all the way spelled out. On, uh, I think Russ, you mentioned that you, last time. Right? Yeah. On page 16, do you mean, or, or are you jumping ahead to 18? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm on. I'm, I'm ahead of you guys. I'm sorry. If you look on, yeah. and that's a good point to bring up, because if you look on page 16 on the on the, the lower, you know, that big splash on the lower portion, you see what I'm what I'm interpreting is, is that as well, because you see right above the guy with the hat with the M, it's the W-A-T, and then it's... Right. You know, it's it's cut off, and then you know, again, like I said, when we jump to jump to eighteen, you know, again, we see the who watches the you know, the guys actually in the middle of finishing it off. You know, we're almost going to see it it fully spelled out for the first time, and then you know, boom, he pops them with the with the rubber bullets and runs them off. And they're also right next to the comic shop Treasure Island from the very first one. 
And if you think right. about Treasure Island and the, and the incoming Black Freighter uh, for issue three, and everything's building up with that too. Yeah. And, and then one of the other things is we, we start to see the, or we get mention of the foreshadowing of why Rorschach maybe kind of went over the deep end and went from the, you know, the kind of slim and trim, you know, normal speaking, you know, fully fluent, you know, coherent guy to, you know, the complete nutbag that he turns into. And, you know, we're on 18 at the top. We say Rorschach's nuts. He's been nuts ever since that kidnapping he handled three years back. Right. So, again, we see, you know, this is, you know, when we when we get, you know, this is more than likely what, you know, what set him off other than <laughs> his own, you know, crazy childhood, which we'll get to. It's funny to me that uh, the comedian goes on, him, Byron Lewis, John Glock, and H-Bomb Osterman, all nuts. You know, meanwhile, he's the one that's nuts, and he can't really see it. You know, he chooses to believe everyone else is nuts, and he's normal. Yeah, kind of like Rorschach, you know, same thing, where he, what did Rorschach say, why do they all, why do they all have to have personality disorders or something like that in, in, in the first issue? You know, like, basically, I'm, you know, why, you know, they're all crazy, and I'm perfectly fine. Right, and it's kind of, again, it's the American parallel. You know, we think we're so great. We're the best at everything because we're different from everyone. You know, maybe it's the other way around. Then we get on, on page 19, you know, where we get the, the, the quotes going on. And, uh, you know, the, 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 towards the bottom where we give, um, forgive us our trespasses. And, you know, what we see is Moloch is kind of in the corner and then again, we see, and we forgive those that trespass against us. And who, what do we see? We see, we see, Doctor Manhattan and and Ozymandias, you know, shaking hands in the foreground. You know, again, that foreshadowing as to you know what's going on. Neat cufflinks too. Um, if anybody has read the latest issue of um, the Final Crisis tie-in Superman Beyond um, 3D number one. Um, DC initiated a new character who, from the multiverse, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. is <laughs> absolutely um, is uh, uh, Captain Adam. Only he looks exactly like Doctor Manhattan, and that yeah. symbol um, is on the new Captain. Well, the new the Captain Adam from the multiverse that uh, Grant Morrison's writing. It's just tilted a little bit. So talk about uh, you know current continuity. It's Watchmen's seeping in a little bit right here, and he's absolutely blue and everything else. And it's a new kind of science. Uh, from that particular parallel Earth. And I just think that while the Lord's Prayer may be the most overwrought and cliched uh, voiceover, you know what? It probably worked back in 86. It probably did. Does anybody know... I, I just started page 20. Maybe something obvious that I missed. You see the airship on the top left, that red ship? Uh-huh. Right. That keeps also, popping up. That was on the cover, and that was... Yeah, I wonder what the, uh, if you look even on that splash page on 16, you know, it's in the air and it's on the cover passing the statue. I would only offer that Zeppelins use, what, hydrogen? Well, doesn't the comedian just basically call out Dr. Manhattan for being the walking H-bomb? And doesn't right. Sally Jupiter do the same thing? I knew we had you on for a reason, you Mac. Hey, and also, I mean, <laughs> the, the Zeppelins are above everything, you know, just like Manhattan is. Right, and Adrian is above everything. On uh, moving on to page, or continuing to page twenty, I should say, um, we see the Soviets will not tolerate U.S. adventurism in Afghanistan, which is a complete <laughs> utter opposition to what was going on at that. I mean, at that time in the mid '80s, the you know the Soviets were you know clearly embroiled in in a in a 
in a mess in Afghanistan, and in this world, it's us that's that's messing in a mess, you know, with Afghanistan. Imagine that. Well, with Dr. Manhattan in your arsenal, we probably would have had a more bold uh, foreign policy. Oh yeah. I literally laughed out loud when uh, Rorschach jumps out of the refrigerator. <laughs> It's crazy, too, because Moloch is, for all intents and purposes here, guys, he's leading the life of Dan Dreberg. Yep. He's alone, he's secluded, in more ways than one, he's reformed. And Rorschach visited Adrian, he visited uh, Lori uh, and Dan, and he visited Dr. Manhattan, and now it's Moloch's turn. And Moloch originates from the Hebrew, which uh, translates roughly to the word king. Uh, Moloch was a magician, as we found out in the prose piece with some of the graphics uh, at the bottom of that. Uh, Moloch was a magician at age 17, uh, and from his connections in nightclubs and such that he worked, he became an underworld boss. And later, as we find out, uh, his story, he reformed, converted to Christianity, strangely enough, just because of the Hebrew influence on the name. And I think more than anything, um, although Gibbons and... Uh, more have not have said where you know the Charlton characters come from. Moloch has more or less remained a, a, a mystery, and I, I say this be, that uh, if I were to pick any graphic uh, parallel to, to Moloch, it would probably be the Spider-Man villain that was created by Alex Saviuk, uh, Tombstone. He's got that real wiry, strange kind of Grundy-esque uh, features to him, but at the same time, is real uh, kind of wiry. Certainly not a fighter anymore, though. Well, if he was active in the 40s, he would have to be in his 60s by now, or 70s. Or if this takes place in the 80s. So. Pretty close, and he's got them Spock ears, those crazy Spock ears going. And now for a dramatic reading from Allen Ginsberg's Hal from Part 2, where he mentions the word Moloch. It goes, What sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed upon their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? Moloch, solitude, filth, ugliness. Ash cans and unobtainable dollars. Children screaming under the stairways. Boys sobbing in armies. Old men weeping in parks. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch. Moloch the loveless, mental Moloch. Moloch the heavy judger of men. Going from what we were uh, talking about before about Rorschach, uh, his journal almost being like beat poetry, it's kind of fitting that he's the one that confronts Moloch then. Completely. So what do you guys, you know, one of, one of the things... You know, the, the next couple pages are, you know, just kind of this confrontation between Moloch and um, and Rorschach, you know, juxtaposed with, you know, uh, the comedian coming to see Moloch, you know, shortly before his death. And, you know, you just, you know, the point they're trying to get across is that something scared the devil out of, uh, out of the comedian. I mean, he was literally scared to death, um, you know, shaking, crying, you know, and, and then they allude to, you know, he, he came across an island, saw what was going on, and it just completely freaked him out. You know, now he comes to, to Moloch and, and confronts him. And I just, what, you know, what are your guys' thoughts on, you know, that whole exchange between the comedian and Moloch and, you, you know, the comedian's fears and, and all that all that that's going on, you know, on pages, you know, between 21 and 23? I took it kind of as, you know, Moloch is is the comedian's joker. You know, they've just been going at it for so long. There's this kind of like maybe a mutual respect. You know, they've, they've been through it all together, and he doesn't know. You know, the comedian has all of these other burnt bridges and all these people that, 
think he's nuts. You know, maybe Moloch is the only place he feels he can go. Um, or even that maybe in the same kind of parallel as Batman and the Joker, maybe he feels they're the same. You know, they're both freaks. Plus, he also says to him, if I thought you did know, I saw your name on the list, you and Janie Slater. But if I thought you were in on this, I'd kill you. You understand? So he knows that he is on the list of, of victims of a conspiracy. So maybe that's why he feels like he can confide in him. Yeah, and if you can't see the parallel between this and um, Batman and the Joker at the end of, uh, you know, The Killing Joke, for example, then you, sorry, but you are not a comic fan. I, I hate to break it to you. Um, and plus, I mean, Alan Moore wrote that as well. But also, if you look back to what we spoke about last episode, that idea of c confessional art. Th this is the comedian, you know, more or less confessing. I know he's, you know, a little liquored up and stuff, but th this is his confession. This is him at the end of the road. It's funny, in the middle panel on 23, you know, right above his head is a cross. Yeah. And actually, now no, that I look he... back, there's a, that cross is pretty... Uh... You know, it sticks out when you look for it now in this whole spread. Yeah. What do you guys think of the coloring? The alternating color patterns between, you know, the oranges and the, and the blues. It just really emphasizes the mixed-up state of the comedian. I mean, he's at his wit's end. He's found, he's come across something that's bigger than he is and that he can't deal with. And the only person he can confide in is his own worst enemy, you know. So it just really shows how at the end of his rope he really is, I think. Like on twenty four, uh, Rorschach's reaction to this whole, to this whole story, funny story, sounds unbelievable, probably true. Yeah, it's so matter of fact, it's so <laughs> contradictory. Mm -hmm. Well, like also, um, the the word and its derivatives thereof also mean sacrifice, and as we're going to see um, in a few short issues here, um, Moloch is a sacrifice. You know, this is a fall guy for a fall guy in, in Rorschach. And Adrian exploits that pretty well. And then when he talks about the cancer, you know, where he says, you know, what cancer, what kind of cancer? Well, you know the kind that, the cancer that you eventually get better from? Yeah? Well, that ain't that kind of cancer I got. Huh. So, you know, just, you know, it, it's, it's so bad, it's you know, not even worth talking about. Then we go back to Rorschach's journal. I like on the beginning of the page, it has tonight, Enola Gay and the Little Boys. Yeah. Uh, the Enola Gay was the plane that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, and Little Boy was the first uh, tested atomic bomb, I think. Yeah, Fat, Fat Man and Little Boy were the first two. And those right. two have also, um, in Brian Azzarello's run uh, with Batman Broken City right after Hush, um, two villains came up, Fat Man and Little Boy, just as a side note. I don't think they've been seen since, though. And you notice how you know, Rorschach just kind of walks through. You know, he doesn't give any, you know, I mean... You know, obviously, any most men, I guess you'd say, walking by would, you know, be at least staring or looking at, you know, what's going on in the pictures and the images and the peep show kind of stuff going on. And he's just, you know, trudging along with his head pointed down, you know, just moving right on through, you know, thinking, you know, with the with the journal uh, comments going in the background. But you know, the comedians at his wits end. He says, "I don't get it. I don't get it. What's so funny?" You know, they're talking about this island of great minds and scientists and you know, art artists and things like that. And I, I would say that 
the closest we've seen to that has been on, in, uh, excuse me, in 52 with Oolong Island with Dr. Savannah and uh, all the other <laughs> bad scientists that put together the four horsemen to what bring about the destruction uh, in primarily of the Marvel family. And then uh, I would only presume the rest of the world. And Adrian's got the same scheme going on here. I like how uh, Rorschach goes back into the cemetery to, you know, pay his last respects quietly without fuss. Like, kind of like he's busy, he's busy watching everybody else at the real funeral. So now he gets to go back and pay respects when, when he can concentrate. Right, it's almost like uh, now that we've seen all the different points of view on the comedian, he's come to, like, sum it all up, you know? Yeah, and then the comment on the middle of the page, so that... When it's done, only our enemies leave roses because that was, you know, Moloch left the roses on his grave, and everybody else just kind of, you know, showed up and, you know, to, to pick up a handful of dirt and toss them on his coffin or, you know, the, the little button and walked away. And then again, talking about uh, your cinematic transitions before in the next few panels, all in red, we see one panel from the assault, we see one panel from uh, the who, um, the murderer coming in to beat up the comedian, we see one panel of the comedian setting the map on fire. You know, it's just like different flashbacks from what we've seen so far, all summed yeah, up. Yeah, we get the alternating between yeah his his demise and his you know you know I guess quote unquote evil deeds all in red. You know, again we get that you know the use of color. It's just right. you know I, I know we talked about it in the last issue and you know again one of those things we'll just continue to talk about. But the use of color, you know Higgins' use of color in this is just is just outstanding. And it just seems like the last panel on page 27 is, like, a darker red than the rest of it? Or is that just my copy? It no, seems I, like it's a little bit darker. No, I think it definitely yeah. is. Especially that third uh, panel on the last page. I mean, that is just... Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I love the line here, though. He saw the true face of the 20th century and chose to become a reflection, a parody of it. No one else saw the joke. That's why he was lonely. And then, of course, the, the joke on page 27 where the, the guy goes to the doctor for you know, treatment, and he's depressed and sad, and, oh, you should go see the clown, and, you know, the guy looks up at the doctor and says, yeah, that, that, that's me. It's hopeless. Yes. Like Adam mentioned on the bottom of 28, it's it's pretty much a, a reflection of, you know, what we saw on page one. There's my Zeppelin again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blake's birth date was tw- 1924, so uh, with that... Uh, when they came together as the Minutemen, he would have been, what, 16 or 17? Yeah, they mentioned he's the youngest of the group. Right. Yeah, I know we'd mentioned that. I didn't realize he was uh, that young. He doesn't really look that young, but... I guess no different than Robin. Yeah, correct. Without the Speedos. (laughs) (laughs) The comedian is nobody's sidekick. And we have the Ellis Costello line there. All right, so lastly, now that we're done with the, 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 the meat and potatoes, so to speak we'll kind of talk a little bit about the prose pages. And, and you know, we kind of glossed over this a little bit in the first one, um, but I thought we'd dig a little deeper into it um, for this one. And, you know, we start up with the third chapter of Hollis Mason's book, Under the Hood, where he, he's continuing on his, um, his autobiography to talk about, you know, when he first became the Night Owl, um, and then, you know, how the Minutemen came together, um, and then goes into to talk about, um, you know, kind of what happened post Minutemen, um, you know, after they kind of broke up or had their, you know, what turned out to be a pretty short-lived, um, you know, gathering of heroes. They, they really didn't, you know, go on and on for, you know, 10, 20, 15 years. They, you know, after 
you know, basically 10 years that they were pretty much, you know, done and out. It's almost like one of those tell-all biographies that you see advertised on Oprah or something, you know. He talks, he talks about how he got started, and then he talks, he dishes the dirt about the rest of the team pretty much in the yeah. four, in the part four. I love the parts when he's talking about It's First of all, I wanted to mention, he, he says that he starts out in 1939. It's uh, very significant. That was when Action Comics number one came out. And uh, also uh, right around then that Batman made his debut. So, uh, you know, it's cool that Moore keeps tying it into the actual comics continuity, you know, with the dates and whatnot. Um, actually, his costume almost makes sense the way he describes it, you know, with the, the leather and the male headpiece, the male shorts. He doesn't want to, you know, wear a cape because it'll slow him down. He doesn't want to wear sleeves because it constricts him. And yet um, we see all the other costumes that have all those things, you know, whereas his seems a little more sensible, mainly because I guess because of his police training, maybe, or just more of a a practical thing on his part. Uh, The really scary thing, if you notice in in part four, the picture here of the Minutemen Christmas Party in 1939, you've got the comedian holding on to the Silk Spectre and the Hooded Justice is holding mistletoe over them. I don't know if you guys noticed that or not. Yeah, yeah, and and Sally almost looks kind of apprehensive. Like, yeah, I'm smiling for the camera, but you can tell she's kind of leaning away and you know, kind of keeping him at arm's length. Right, right, and he's trying to to get a little closer. Yeah, yeah. I love the story in the prose piece too about Dollar Bill uh, being sponsored by a bank out in the Midwest, (laughs) and then (laughs) he ends up getting killed at point blank range by a pistol because his cape gets caught in the bank's revolving door. You guys, obviously, obviously, Brad Bird. has uh, the guy who created the Incredibles has read Watchmen? <laughs> that, that's exactly where it's going. Anytime I hear nowadays about any 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 situation where they talk about superheroes not having capes or they make comments about having capes, I just go right to the Incredibles and just it just makes me chuckle. And as far as the sponsorship, you, we've also seen that with Booster Gold, right? True. Yeah. Yeah. It also shows in here the the, um, the comedian's transition after the the Minutemen break up from uh, being a freelance adventurer to being a government operative. They show him uh, cleaning up in the South Pacific, um, starting to wear you know more of a government line uniform. He still has the mask on, but the rest of his uniform looks like a regular GI. Is that the uh, that's the Japanese flag he's clutching, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Pack of camels in his uh, tucked into his uh, costume there. Yeah. But a lot of them uh, fall into disrepute. Dollar Bill was shot dead. Silhouette was outed as a lesbian and then killed by her lover. Um, and then it, he, at the end of it, he, Hollis Mason says it's just him, Mothman, Hooded Justice, and Captain Metropolis sitting around a meeting hall that smelled like a locker room. So they they called it quits in 1949. Yeah. No, I was going to say then they talk. You know, they talk about Moloch too. About you know he. he started out as a stage musician and then, you know, became, you know, this flamboyant criminal mastermind. The best part about the, this is how matter-of-fact he is, you know. He's just like, well, I decided to go put on a costume and go beat people up. Let's see, what am I going to do? Oh, well, I'll do this, you know. He just, he just very matter-of-factly goes through and explains everything about his costume, why it is the way it is, and uh, I don't know. It just seemed like very, very mon- mundane telling of something that not many people would do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like we see, we see in the comic book Kick-Ass now about a guy putting on a costume and running out and getting the crap kicked out of him. This right. uh, chapter four also uh, starts to give a little bit of uh, uh, some more information about Sally Jupiter and talks about how uh, she is um, 
has an agent and she's more interested in the uh, kind of the limelight of everything and uh, how then she also ends up uh, stopping being a, a, a superhero and ends up marrying her agent. So it's it's not so much about the crime fighting. It's it's more about what she can get out of it. And that's how the whole Minutemen Men, uh, thing started was with her and her agent. Trying to get publicity, you know. Again, yeah, it goes like, Hollywood. Back to the, like to the Booster Gold thing you were saying before, you know, these these, comer- these superheroes were commercial right out of the gate. When you, if you think about it, we don't really hear, as far as the Minutemen goes, uh, too much about their actual crime-fighting activities. I mean, you know, we get hints and, you know, they talk about, you know, Moloch, you know, becoming a villain and, you know, you hear, you know, little things, you know, thrown here and there, but you don't really hear about the day-to-day or the, you know, big, you know, events of, you know, what made the Minutemen the Minutemen, you know, as opposed to as we get into it with, you know, kind of the Generation 2 heroes where, you know, we get the teaming of, you know, Rorschach and um, Night Owl 2 and, and, and the comedian going in and then Silk Spectre 2, you know, you, you kind of see a little bit more of what, what they what they were able to actually do. Whereas with, you know, the Minutemen, you know, we've, we've had more references and inferences to, you know, social gatherings than, than anything else. Maybe that's why later when Captain Metropolis calls the meeting that he just sees it as a, they see it as a publicity stunt. Yeah. Because the Minutemen turned out to be a big publicity stunt. Anything else on the on the pros? I don't think so. All right. So I guess next we'll move on to we've got some comments on the we put kind of put a, a pre a pre issue two thread out on the on the forum and we got some comments. So I guess if uh, John you have those we can we can kind of shout those out and and then comment you know as as necessary. Sure. Um, there's two that I'd like to read. One is from uh, Alexander B on the forums. He says, uh, read it today, really dug the flashbacks of Adrian, Dan, and Dr. Manhattan to show the character of the comedian to the reader. It also shows what those characters remember most of the comedian and how he affected them in a large way. And he says, the end scene with Rorschach helped me get the comedian's character. From what I was able to put apart, the comedian sees America as the nation trying to hold the world together. But in the end, it's all useless because we will we'll all nuke each other. So he dresses in red, white, and blue as a parody, which was quoted um, by us, I guess, in issue one, to represent the joke he sees in society. And his one last point is Rorschach jumping out of a refrigerator equals awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to Alexander B. And, I know yeah, that- and that, that's interesting that he says that because, you know, it, it is policy of mutual assured destruction. In other words, if the bombs are coming over here, well, you know what? We might as well send them over there, too. Mm-hmm. And as we've seen in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the best place to hide is in a fridge. <laughs> Spoiler! Come on! <laughs> oh. uh, okay, and we have Caliban again who said uh, this was the first issue when I noticed the blood running down the back cover. And he has an interesting note. He says, in the first printing, the full line from the Elvis Costello song did not appear as an epigraph. In fact, they were left out of the first three issues altogether. So many of us didn't catch them unless we picked up a second printing, waited for the trade, or read about it in a fanzine. Uh, He also says Nova Express gets its first mention here, which I think we had gone over. Right, and right, and he says, as ever, keep an eye out for what the end is nigh man is doing and his hands, which I think refers to 
the ink from the sign running down his hands and the stuff that we had spoken about. We didn't talk about it a little bit, but did you did you also take that as you know Rorschach's not or or seeing it as the sign you know the the the, the I, I guess one way you can look at it is blood running down the sign and, and onto his hands, but almost like weeping. Did you guys did you guys pick up all that you know that might be Rorschach weeping since he's not actually crying for the death of the comedian, but yet given the look on his face and him holding the sign and the way that the, the ink and everything runs down, that it's almost like that that's that's Rorschach weeping for the comedian. That's pretty neat because actually that is ink, and that's what the Rorschach test is based off of, right, ink blots? Right. And it goes along with the theme, you know, right, what do we see on the front cover and the first panel is the Statue of Liberty weeping. So it kind of goes along with the theme. Yeah. Um, and again, Paul French had a fantastic and extremely long post for us, which is just great stuff. We're going to have to have him on eventually. <laughs> or we're just going to have to dedicate an episode to nothing but but his his comments. <laughs> I've, I've been reading his stuff, and it's all just, just phenomenal, you know, great great stuff. Yeah, I, great. I, call, I call I'm not reading comments that day. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have to rotate duties that day. <laughs> Wasn't that Kent's week? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we made it through another issue. Another issue. Good lord! Yeah. <laughs> and more to go. You in the can. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, um, just a quick shout out. Thanks, Paul, and thanks, uh, Alexander, for doing that. Um, if you want to check out Paul's podcast, uh, check out the Poptopia uh, podcast, which is awesome. I guess. Uh, thanks again to everybody else that helped plug us. You guys gave us uh, some amazing listener support. Uh, for our first episode, and I could only hope that we live up to that expectation um, with the next, how many we have left? Ten episodes and beyond. Right. Good and, math, Adam. <laughs> and please uh, on the math. <laughs> keep an eye out at halfhourwasted.com. Please, again, check out their show if, if you're not already, and uh, keep on the lookout for us. We have some other things planned besides The Watchmen, and the scheduling's a little wild right now, so you never know when a new show is going to pop up. I just wanted to shout out to our podcasting friend, Lori, from the Comic Book Roadshow. I hope everything's okay, Lori, and our prayers and good thoughts are with you. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Take care, Lori. And uh, everybody else, you can email comments uh, about the Legion of Dudes to comments at legionofdudes.com, or you could post at our forums on the Half Hour Wasted site. Check out halfhourwasted.com or go to thecomicforums.com, and we'll talk to you guys for Issue 3. Take care. Stay out of trouble. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.